0: Verse number 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 29. The Bible says, Now the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek, and the Israelites pitched by a fountain which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed on by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed on in the re-reward with Achish. And we'll tell you what that is here in a moment. Then said the princes of the Philistines, What do these Hebrews here?" And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, Is not this David the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which hath been with me these days or these years? And I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day. And the princes of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place, which thou hast appointed him. Let him, go not, let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us. For wherewith should he be recon- or should he reconcile himself unto his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men? Now, you understand what they just said. They said, if he wants to get in Saul's good favor, one good way he can do it is by killing all of us. Verse 5, Is not this David of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying, Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said unto him, Surely as the Lord liveth, thou hast been upright in my going out and my coming in with me in the host." is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me unto this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. Wherefore, now return and go in peace, that thou displease not the lords of the Philistines. And David said unto Achish, But what have I done? And what hast thou found in thy servant so long as I have been with thee unto this day, that I may not go fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? And Achish answered and said to David, I know that thou art good in my sight, as an angel of God. Notwithstanding, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Wherefore, now rise up early in the morning with thy master's servants that are come with thee. And as soon as ye be up early in the morning, and have light, depart. So David and his men rose up early to depart in the morning, to return into the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up. Jezreel. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight or this morning. We we thank you for your presence and power we've already felt. I pray that you would speak to hearts. Lord, it is beyond my reach to be able to accomplish in human hearts what needs to be done to bring you glory. Lord, I can't show a person they're wrong. I can't convince a person to get right. Lord, I can't break anyone's spirit. I can't mold and remake that spirit. These are all tasks that belong only to the Holy Ghost. So, Father, I ask that You'd help me this morning to preach with unction and power. And I ask that You would receive glory as the Spirit of God moves in this place and works in the heart of these under the sound of my voice. Lord, I love You this morning. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice a few things before we get into the preaching. Notice the scene that is set before us. And I think there's some good indications of what God is doing when you look at some of the names involved. You know, names are very important in your Bible. Uh, you ought to sometimes, if you're ever reading a, particularly an Old Testament story and you want to get a little perspective, uh, get you a Bible dictionary and find out what the names of the places mean. Now, sometimes they won't hold significance, but sometimes they will. And I think the two names that are associated of places here uh, are very significant. The Bible says, look again in verse 1, Now, the Philistines gathered together all their armies to Aphek. Now, the name Aphek means a walled in or enclosed place. It says in the Israelites, pitched by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is a very important place in your Bible. You'll find the place Jezreel uh, mentioned over and over again. The name literally means God sows. Now, when we talk about sowing, we're not talking about taking a, a, a garment and a thread and a needle, but we're talking about like a person who has seed in their hand, like a farmer, is sowing seed. And always in the Bible, the idea of sowing is accompanied with the idea of reaping. Over and over again, the Bible talks about they that sow plentifully shall reap plentifully, that be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And all through the Bible, you'll find this idea of, of reaping along with sowing. And when it's found in the Bible, you'll find that it's also always associated with the idea of judgment. In other words, if you do A, you can expect B. If you do this, you can expect that. It reminds us that our actions have consequences. Now, what does this mean to you and me? Well, I'd like for you to think for a moment about where David is headed to. He's headed to a place that's walled up and enclosed. You know, it reminds me of what God is doing in the heart and life of a person when they're running from the Lord. You know, God has a way of walling us in to where we have to face the reality of our decisions. Now sometimes you'll and I try to be very careful, listen i 've known preachers, they didn 't matter if somebody stubbed their toe, that was the judgment of God. you know I, I, i've known and by the way, i 've known people to stand beside someone 's sick bed and say god 's judgment is upon you, and a week later they're laying in a sick bed. So I do think we have to be cautious, but I will say this, that there are times in life when I've seen people who were obviously running from God. They were obviously out of the will of God. They had obviously chosen to depart from God's communion and fellowship, and God had tracked them down and walled them in. Can I give you a Bible example? Can I remind you about Jonah? (laughs) I think most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. Uh, The Bible says that Jonah, he was uh, commanded to go to Nineveh and to preach uh, God's prophecy. And instead, the Bible says he got on a ship headed to Tarshish. And why was he doing that? He wasn't running from Nineveh. The Bible says he was running from the presence of the Lord. Uh, His heart was wrong with God. He was trying to get as far away from God as he could. And he runs and runs. And he gets on this ship. And by the way, if you look at a map, you know what... you. Okay, here's Israel, all right, and and here's right, I need to turn the light. Here's Israel, and here's Nineveh. You know where Tarshish is? It's way over there. He was trying to run as far away from God's will as he possibly could. You know, the only thing he didn't account for is that God's everywhere. And so he gets in this ship and he's headed the opposite way. He's running from God. And the Bible says that the Lord stirred up a great wind, brought a great wind against that ship. And the storm began to, to, to blow and the waves began to crash. And pretty soon, everybody on that ship, they knew something was wrong. Uh, they were pagans. They did not know the Lord. But they had enough sense to know when God had showed up and was making His presence known. And so they start asking themselves, well, who's done something to make God angry? And uh, Jonah, he's down in the bottom of the... Uh, boat he's asleep and uh, finally he, he wakes up they wake him up and they say hey you better get up you better pray to whatever gods you worship because this ship is about to sink and they start to draw lots to figure out who's done something wrong and it falls upon jonah and they say jonah what have you done and jonah says i'm a prophet of the lord i'm running from the will of god and you know what he said now tell me something tell me this is not an indictment against what living out of the will of god can do against you know what he said he said throw me overboard i'd rather die than get right with god i 'd rather die than get right with God, and they say well we 're going to do our best to not have to do that. They start throwing everything else over overboard, and they start rowing trying to get to land, but they know pretty soon God isn't going to let them get to land because God 's trying to get Jonah, and He knows what he 's after, and so they cast Jonah overboard. And you know what God did? He' had prepared a great fish. Uh, The Bible calls him a whale. A lot of people say, well, uh, there's a difference between a whale and a fish. Well, according to modern science textbooks, there are. But God calls it a fish, and God calls it a whale. And I think whatever God calls something, that's what it is. Amen? So that ain't no problem to me. I mean, listen, I'd sooner believe God than my science textbook anyway. Uh, So uh, the Bible says he prepared a great fish or a great whale, and that thing swallowed Joan up. Now, you want to talk about being walled in. Imagine spending three days and three nights in the belly of a whale. And there Jonah had to deal with the problem of his rebellion. There he cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And God dealt with him. You know, God has a way when we're running from the Lord to wall us in. I see that this was a place where God was walling him in. But also the Bible says that Israel was in a place called Jezreel, which is associated with the judgment of God. I've already described what the definition of the name means, but can I remind you that Jezreel is the place, uh, by the way, it's not far from the Valley of Megiddo where the Battle of Armageddon is going to one day take place, but it's also the place where Jezebel, uh, the wife of of uh, Ahab, was uh, judged of God where she pitched herself out of the window, she fell to her death, and the dogs came and and ate her up. And that for 20 years that prophecy had been given, it was fulfilled in that day. Uh, Jezreel is also the place mentioned in the book of Hosea when it's related to the judgment of God. Always this place of Jezreel deals with God's judgment. You know what I find? I find that here's David. He's at a place where he's walled up. He's enclosed. He's having to deal with this problem. And just right over the hill is the place of God's judgment. Can I describe it this way and say that David was just maybe a few hundred yards from the judgment of God? He's at the place where he God's judgment is about to fall on his life. God's chastisement is about to cover him fully. But you know, I find something else is there. Boy, this encourages me. The Bible says there's a fountain there. There's a fountain there. You get studying through your Bible what a fountain means. A fountain deals with a lot of things. You know, water in the Bible, when it, when it talks about its cleansing effect, it deals it's referencing the Word of God. Sometimes when the Bible talks about water as being broad and huge and voluminous, it's talking about the population and peoples of the earth. But when the Bible speaks about water in a drinking sense, it is always a picture of the Holy Ghost. Remember in John chapter number 4, when the Lord met a woman by the well side, He said, if you drink the water that I shall give you, it shall be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, what would you call a well of water that's springing up? I believe I'd call that a fountain, wouldn't you? And it reminds me of this, that when we're out of the will of God, when we're running from the Lord, when our, wall, our life has been walled in, when we're having to face our decisions, when we're footsteps from the judgment of God, if we belong to the Lord, that's the place where the Holy Ghost is. And He's dealing with us, and He's working in our life, and He's beckoning unto us, and He's speaking unto us, and He's trying to draw us back from that place of judgment. See, I think this is a pivotal time in David's life. In fact, some might say it is the most pivotal time In David's life. I think it's pivotal, number one, because he's at the battle. He's at the place where he's about to go out and march against the people of God. He's at a place, by the way, and listen, you don't have to believe this if you don't want to, but I do believe this. I believe, you know, Saul was going to die in this battle. I believe if David had fought in that battle, I believe David would have died too. You say, why do you believe that? Because God was judging Saul, and I believe God was going to judge David. I believe, in other words, this was David's last chance. He's at the battle. I notice not only is he at the battle, but I notice he is in the back. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible says he's riding in the re-reward with Achish. Now, the re-reward is a military term. And what it means is when a great procession of people was marching forth, the re-reward would have been the people in the very, very back. And most of the time, it was a place of prominence and respect. Oftentimes, you've been in a parade or you've seen a parade, right? They don't put the good floats up front. They put the good floats in the back. You know why? Because when the, when the first floats go by, ain't nobody seeing it. Everybody's getting their seats. They're getting settled. They're buying popcorn. They're showing up late. They're parking their car. But they save those. And that's where we get that idea that uh, we're saving the best for last. Now, what does this mean to us? Well, it means this. That David, remember, he is the personal bodyguard of Achish, the king of Gath. He and his six hundred and some odd men, they are riding in chariots alongside him. And David himself, he is right up smack next to Achish. He's standing in a place of prominence. He's standing in a place. Listen, this is as good as sin is going to be for David. This is as prominent as he's going to be. We might say it this way. That he is in a place of prominence and respect and admiration. And that sin is pulling as hard as it can at his heart to keep him ensnared. You know, oftentimes we worry when sin gets boring and gets tough and gets difficult. I'll tell you when we really ought to worry is when we're enjoying it. Because that's when it's digging deeper into our heart and into our life. But can I say this to you, and we'll get into the preaching. I promise you, amen, I promise you, we're going to get in. Can I say that not only is he in the battle and he's in the back, but I notice that he's on the brink. David's about to make a decision that is going to completely destroy the plan of God for his life. Now, stop and think for a moment. Here in a little while, in this very battle, Saul is about to die. And when Saul dies, David is going to go back. He's going to, he's going to talk to the Lord. He's going to say, should I go back to Israel? And God's going to say, yes, you should go back to Judah, go back to Israel. David's going to go back, and he's going to spend some time reigning in Hebron. He is literally, not only is he footsteps away from the grave, but he's footsteps away from the crown. He's at a pivotal moment in his life. Now, he does not realize that, but God does know that. Can I say this to you this morning? You may not even realize the knife's edge that your life is on right now. But you better listen to the Holy Ghost, because God knows where your life is right now. You might be getting ready to make a decision. We were taking prayer requests this morning and, and uh, Taylor, I think it was, was talking about he's going for a job interview. I talked to somebody else this morning about a, a job interview that they had been taking. And, you know, we make these decisions in life and they're important decisions. They're decisions we have to make. Uh, me and my wife, we, we have things that we look at all the time, decisions we're trying to make. You know, it could be we look at that thing we think it's just another decision. But that could be the very decision that everything hinges on. And if you're going to fall this way or fall that way, let me tell you, beloved, we need communion with the Lord. We need wisdom from God. We need the direction of the Holy Ghost because we don't have it within us to make these decisions on our own. Now, imagine, if you will, that David, he makes the wrong decision. And by the way, I, David does make the wrong. He's ready to go out to battle. But imagine what would have happened. He would have gone out to battle. And what would have happened when all of Israel had seen him marching at the head of a Philistine army? In other words, David is about to throw everything away. He is about to blow any chance he has of being king. And and, and if I'm right, one of these days we'll get to heaven. The Lord's going to tell you how right I am about everything. But if if I'm right, David is also possibly about to lose his life. Everything hangs on this decision. And guess what happens? In the midst of all of that, God shows up and is working in his life. Now, you may not see the Lord in this chapter. In fact, to my knowledge, there's only one time that the Lord's mentioned by proper name, and it's from the lips of a Philistine king. But just like with the uh, with the book of, of Esther, uh, even though you don't see God's name there very present, God's hand is all over this chapter. And you know, oftentimes in our lives, when we feel like God is nowhere, God is everywhere. And, and God's everywhere when we're walking with Him. God's everywhere when we're running from Him. Just as Jonah thought he could run from the presence of God, and there upon that boat in the middle of the sea, he thought, I'm as far away from God as I can be. But he was as close to God there as he had been anywhere. God was able to deal with him. I want you to notice three ways in which I believe the Lord showed mercy to David while he was out of the will of God. David has made all the wrong decisions. He's done all the wrong things. His life hangs on a knife's edge. It, it, it hangs by a silken strand. It, it can go either way. He's about to throw everything away. And God is working mightily. And I see three ways that God did it. Now, I want you to look in your text this morning. I don't even have sub points. Somebody say amen to that. That's why I preached so long for an introduction. I want you to look at verse number 3. The Bible says, Then said the princes of the Philistines, What do these Hebrews hear? And Achish said unto the princes of the Philistines, Is not this David, the servant of Saul, the king of Israel, which hath been with me these days or these years, and I have found no fault in him since he fell unto me unto this day? Can I, can I pause? Can I say something that I just noticed that I, might, I believe you might need to hear? You notice how, how Achish says it? These days or these years. Can I say to you that the devil does not value your time the way that God values your time? When he describes how that David's been in, in gas, he says, I don't know if it's been days. I don't know if it's been years. The devil does not value your time. God values your time. So the reason the Bible says redeeming the time, because the days are evil. The devil, he don't care how much time you spend out of the will of God. But you know, when in the Word of God, when God records how long David had been, God says he was there 16 months. God, the devil, he don't care how long you're out of the will of God. But the Lord, he knows exactly every day you've spent out of the will of God. He says these days or these years, look at verse uh, number six, the Bible or verse number five. Uh, the, or where am I at? Where you, you messed me up this morning with that preaching thought. Verse number four, the Bible says, and the prince of the Philistines were wroth with him. And the princes of the Philistines said unto him, Make this fellow return, that he may go again to his place, which thou hast appointed him. And let him not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he be an adversary to us. For wherewith should he reconcile himself unto his master? Should it not be with the heads of these men? Now notice what they say in verse 5. Is not this David... Of whom they sang one to another in dances, saying, Saul slew his thousands and David his ten thousands. Let me say, number one, the first way that God showed mercy to David when he was out of the will of God is he caused him to be rejected by his companions. So, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. If you look at the story of the prodigal son, nothing started to change until the folks around him that had been propping him up bailed on him and left. As long as he had people around him enabling his sin, as long as he had people around him that enjoyed his sin, that participated in his sin, he was going to stay on that path. But when everyone forsook him, and here he is slopping the hogs, here he is being mistreated and abused, it was in the hog pen, in the hog pen, that he came to himself. Let me tell you something. If you're out of the will of God this morning and things are rough, that's not because God... Hates you, that's because God loves you. (laughs) Listen, God didn't put Jonah in the middle of a storm because He hated him. He did it because He loved him. God didn't put him in the belly of a whale because He hated him. God put him there because He loved him. We have a tendency. We live in probably the most narcissistic time in human history. Eighty percent of the technological power and influence used today is used to take pictures of ourselves and put online so other people can look at them i got news for you. I'm looking at you. All right? They ain't missing nothing if you're not putting selfies on there, okay? And you can say the same thing about me. Amen? But that's where we invest our time and our energy. We live in a narcissistic society. And we tend to think like this. We tend to think, well, everybody's picking on me and everybody's mean to me and everybody's mistreating me. And we have a tendency to cause our world to revolve around us. And so when, when we're out of the will of God and we start living wrong, and when all of a sudden we find that our life is in turmoil, we think it's because everybody's against us. No, the truth is it ain't that everybody's against you. If you're saved by God's grace and you're living out of the will of God and your life's a mess, it's not that way because everybody's against you. It's that way because the only person that matters is for you. And He loves you. And He's trying to pursue you. And He's trying to deal with you. And He is walling you in to get you to deal with this sin problem. Everything was great until the battle came. They go to the battle, and Achish, he has David right beside him. And that didn't sit well with those Philistine uh, leaders. They, looked, they they thought, David, he's the one that killed Goliath. He's the one that has stood against us in battle. There was probably some people there whose brothers and sons and fathers and grandchildren were laying dead on a battlefield because David had slain them. After all, the Bible says Saul slew his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And when it really came down to it, you know what happened when it really came down to it? They said, what He is, is not what we are. What He is for is not what we are for. Who He is for is not who we are for. There is a fundamental difference between Him and us, and we will not abide Him here. You know, the truth is this. As a Christian, when you're living in the world, there's a fundamental difference between you and them. Who you're for is not who they're for. Who you belong to is not who they belong to. Now listen, I, we ought to try to reach lost people. We ought to show them the love and the compassion of Christ because the only difference between them and us is Jesus Christ. But can I say to you, Jesus Christ is a big deal. Jesus Christ is a big difference. And when He comes into a person's life, He changes them, He changes everything about them, He breathes new life into them, and you are fundamentally changed from what you used to be. There's a difference. So don't be surprised when the battle starts and when things get tough, when that crowd that has enabled your sin walks off and leaves you. Man, I've seen it happen in the lives of young people. I can't tell you how many times. Young people that all of a sudden, man, uh, there's this, like from a far country, There's most of the time it's a friend. I'm not saying young people shouldn't have friends. Amen. Just because I didn't have none growing up don't mean you shouldn't. But usually it's a friend It's come from another ideal system, come from another set of values, come from another worldview. And all of a sudden, they're all about that friend, you know. Everything's all about what that friend thinks and what that friend does and trying to fit in with that friend. And pretty soon, that friend begins to lure them away from the truth and teaching that they've been raised with. And pretty soon, I've seen it happen. I've seen them. They, they get up older. They get out uh, of their parents' home. They get an apartment. They uh, they start doing their own thing. They become absent, MIA around the house of God. And they're out there. What are they doing, preacher? They're in the far country, and they ain't run out of money yet. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, I've seen this happen time and again. All of a sudden, you'll be up there, and the last person you thought would walk through the door will be that person. They'll be coming through the door, and you can see it in their eyes that something's different. They've been humbled by their life's experiences. And you say, well, what happened? And they say, well, so-and-so ran off with the rent. <laughs> or they'll say, well, so-and-so, he was my friend until I told him I wasn't going to you know, go out and party and, and drink and carry on. Well, so-and-so was, said with my, you know, he was my friend and until he found out I, I, I know the Lord and I read my Bible. And that's what it took, listen now, to get them back through those doors. They had to be rejected by their companions. Things had to be tough. They had to be abandoned. And the truth of the matter is this. you, you, If you're out of the will of God this morning, things are getting tough. That's just because God loves you and He's trying to get your attention. It's not because God hates you. It's because He's interested. You know what God would do if it was in His best interest and comfort and ease? He'd just leave you alone. You know, the most terrifying thing, one of the most petrifying passages in the entire Word of God is in the book of Hosea. When you know what the Lord says about Israel, He says, Israel, He calls them Ephraim. That's the name of Israel when they're living in sin. He says, Ephraim is given unto idols, let her alone. Let her alone. You say, what was God saying? He was saying they've crossed the line. He said it another way. He said that they have a disease that's incurable. That's what He said in that same book of Hosea. They have disease that's incurable. The only thing that could break them from their sin was for them to be broken over their sin and to be carried into Babylon and broken by their sin. It's the only way. God says later alone. let me tell you something, if God's dealing with you this morning, you better listen. Because that's the love of God. You know what the Bible says concerning God's desire for mankind to be saved? It says we ought to count the long suffering of God to usward salvation. If God's dealing with you this morning, if He's stirring your heart this morning, it's not because He doesn't love you, it's because He does love you. It's not because He's done with you, it's because He's not done with you. He has caused you to be walled in and rejected by life circumstances that He might get your attention. I see that He's shown mercy in the fact that He was rejected by His companions. One of the most fascinating verses in this entire series is found in verse number 6. will Won't you to notice it with me. The Bible says, Then Achish called David and said unto him, Surely as the Lord liveth, thou hast been upright, and thy going out and thy coming in with me in the host is good in my sight. For I have not found evil in thee since the day of thy coming unto me, unto this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's favor thee not. Now, this is fascinating for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons it's fascinating is because Achish is saying, David, you have lived uprightly and righteously before me. Saying, David, I've seen something in your life that I don't see in my life. But it's also interesting for the first few words that he says. He says, surely as the Lord live. Whoa, the Lord. Now, if you study your Bible, you know that when you see that name Lord in all capital letters, that that denotes the name Jehovah. And that is the national name of Israel. Now, it would have been one thing for Achish to say, as God liveth. But here's the problem. Who's God? Uh, the God of the Israelites would have would have been uh, Jehovah. The God of the Philistines would have been Dagon. Uh, the God of the Amorites would have been Moloch. Who was the God He was talking about? But that's not what He says. He says, as Jehovah liveth. Can I say that one of the ways that David was shown mercy was in that he was rejected by his companions. Number two, he was shown mercy in that he was remembered for his conversation. In other words, God through David's disobedience, still got glory out of his life. Here's a Philistine king saying, I know that the God of Israel is alive. And I know it, David, because I've seen it in your life. (laughs) It reminds me of Jonah once again. You know, we think of Jonah as being really right with God by the time he gets spit out of that whale's belly. The Bible uses a good Bible term that says vomited. Vomited. The, belly of the fish vomited him up on dry land. And we kind of think of Jonah being right with God at that point. Well, let me say this. In some ways, Jonah had gotten right with God. Jonah most certainly had been broken by his sin. Jonah most certainly had realized that it was not in his best interest to run from God. But do you know that Jonah's chief problem with this whole venture was this? Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were the most bloodthirsty and brutal empire ever to have lived. The nation of Israel at that time, in the time of Jonah, is living outside of the will of God. And, God, and Jonah knows that God will judge Israel for their backsliddenness. You know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? It wasn't because he hated Ninevites. Jonah didn't want to not go to Nineveh because he was scared. I've heard people say that. He was scared to go to Nineveh. Let me tell you something. Somebody that's scared to death doesn't say, throw me outside of this boat. You know why he didn't want to go to Nineveh? Because he loved Israel. And you know why his love for Israel caused him to not want to go to Nineveh? He understood this. That if God was going to judge Israel, he was probably going to use the Assyrians to do it. And he was hoping that God would judge Assyria before he judged Israel. He knew that if he came in, the problem, you know what he says? He goes and he preaches to the, to the Ninevites and they all repent. I mean, from the king to the cattle. They all put on sackcloth and ashes. I don't know who had a sackcloth shirt for a cow to wear, but they made one because the Bible says they put sackcloth and ashes on every one of them. And you know what Jonah said? He said, this was my word from the day that I was in my country. You know what he says to God? He says, God, I knew if I came down here and preached to these people, they were going to repent. And by extension, he was saying "And now you're going to prolong them in your mercy and you're going to use them to judge Israel. By the way, nobody gives credit where credit's due. Jonah was right. God did use the Assyrians to judge Israel. And then God later on, because of the Assyrians' rebellion, turns around, you read about it in the book of Nahum, and He judges Assyria. You know why? Because all sin stinks in the nostrils of God. Your sin, my sin, religious sin, uh, secular sin, uh, church people sin, uh, non-church people. It all stinks in the nostrils of God. But something, consider this with me. Jonah goes. He preaches to the people of Nineveh. They repent. He's mad about it. He goes. He sits under a tree and he sulks about it. I don't know what it is, but every time somebody gets mad at God, they won't sit down under a tree. Amen? Uh, the most spiritual way we can be is cut all the trees down in our yard. Amen. I'm joking. Don't, don't think I mean that literally. You'll be sending the church bills for people cutting down your trees. Uh, but, but it seems like everybody wants to go and sit down under... So he goes and he sits down under a tree. And you you know the story. You've probably read how it God causes a, you know, a gourd to, to spring up. And Jonah rejoices in the gourd. But then when God uh, smites the gourd and destroys it, he he's upset and he says, Lord, just kill me. I'm miserable. I want it. And the Lord says, Hey, you're more concerned about this gourd than you are all these people in Assyria. Here's what I want you to realize. Jonah was still had a rotten spirit. But God used him to preach repentance unto the Ninevites. And the greatest city in the world at that time repented from the king to the cattle in sackcloth and ashes. I'm saying this. God in all of His miraculous mercy, when you look back, you'll see that somehow God got glory out of David's life. And when you're out of the will of God, God is even able to take that. Hey, the devil, he don't value your time. He don't know if you've been in the, in the land of the Philistines months or years. He don't care. But God knew 16 months, David. Why? Because God had been kept and keeping an account of it. And God had been getting glory out of it. even Not because of David's rebellion, but in spite of his rebellion. Let me give you a final thought and I'm done this morning. I believe that God showed him mercy and that he was rejected by his companions believe that God showed him mercy and that he was remembered for his conversation. But look down at verse number 7. This is Achish speaking, and he says this, Wherefore now return and go in peace, that thou displease not the lords of the Philistines. And David said unto Achish, But what have I done? And what hast thou found in thy servants so long as I have been with thee unto this day, that I may not go fight against the enemies of my lord the king? Nakish answered and said to David, I know that thou art good. In my sight is an angel of God. Notwithstanding, the princes of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to battle. Look at verse 10. Wherefore now rise up early in the morning with thy master's servants that are come with thee. And as soon as ye be up early in the morning and have light, depart. I think God showed him mercy in that he was uh, rejected by his companions. He was remembered for his conversation. But finally, and I'm done, I believe God showed him mercy in that he was released. By his captor. You know what God gave David? He gave him a way out. He gave him a way out. I, I, I keep, I don't know what it is. I don't, Jonah and Hosea this morning, but we're going to go back to Hosea again. You know what the Lord said to the nation of Israel? He talked about their wickedness and their sin. And in chapter number four, he talked about how they had rebelled against him and how he had dealt with them and pursued them, how he had tried through love and and long suffering and and tender kindness to draw them back unto himself, but they had rejected him. They had pushed him away. And you know what he said? He said, I will give them a door of Acre for a door of hope. Now, that's pretty interesting. Door of Acre for a door of hope. When you get to studying that word Acre, you know that it's the same name as the name Achan. You remember Achan in the book of Joshua that stole the Babylonian garment and the wedge of silver and the portion of gold and that God uh, judged him and his whole family was stoned to death? Did you know that Achan's name, the name Achan, it means troubling or troublemaker or troubled? That's very, uh, I believe, symbolic of Achan's role that he played in Scripture. But now let's consider that in relation to the nation of Israel. You know what he's saying to them? He's saying, you're going to have to go through some heartache. But in that heartache, I'm going to give you a door. And a door of hope whereby you can escape what you've gotten yourself into. <laughs> it's fascinating when you consider what's going on here. Achan says to David, David, you can't go with me. Just leave. And you know what David says? David says, well, I don't want to leave. Why should I have to leave? Reminds me of Lot when they're dragging him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, let me stay, let me stay. And the angels got him by the hand and dragging him out of Sodom and Gomorrah. David's saying, please let me stay. And two times, you know, the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, shall anything be established? Two times Achish said, no, David, you're at liberty. Now go. You know, the greatest act of mercy, and I want you to listen carefully, and I don't want you to think this is prideful, what I'm about to say. But you know, the greatest act of mercy God could have shown you in the midst of your rebellion could be this service this morning. One more opportunity to hear the Word of God preached. One more opportunity to have your sin exposed in your heart by the Holy Ghost. One more opportunity for an altar to be laid before you, for a preacher to get up and preach, for a, a piano player to play, for an invitation to be given, just a door of hope for you to walk through. One more opportunity to walk away. I believe this was David's last opportunity. And he didn't even want to take it, but God, in His mercy, He sort of herded him through that door. And it could be this morning that you're right there at that place on the brink. This could be the last message you ever hear. This could be the last message you ever hear before you have to walk through that door of trouble and despair. This could be the last opportunity. God has walled you in, has dealt with you, has exposed your sin in your heart. You know you're wrong. You know you've done wrong. You know you need to get right. He has walled you in. You are steps away from the place of God's judgment and chastisement. But there's a fountain there bubbling and flowing of the Holy Ghost influence. He's drawing you unto Himself this morning. It could be this is your moment of mercy. So here's the question. What are you going to do with it? to turn around and walk away and walk down into the place where God sows judgment and destruction? Or are you going to turn? You're going to say, Lord, you've given me a way of escape that I might be able to come unto you. I've been tempted to do wrong. I've been tempted to live wrong, but you've given me a way of escape. Lord, I'm going to take it. Would you come to him this morning? Would you let him deal with you in his presence? With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed,